Keeping It Civil is a BBC Law broadcast. Come and find us at bbclawfirm.com. Follow Steve Colden or myself, Tom Girallo, on LinkedIn so we can introduce you to all the great people we work with. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of our podcast here at BBC Law, Keeping It Civil. I will be your host for today. My name is Steve Colden. I'm here, a partner at the law firm, and I'm here with my partner in crime, Tom Girallo, and he's also my partner. How you doing, Tom? I'm doing good, Steve. Thanks for the intro. I'm your Ed McMahon today. There you go. And we are really excited today because we have a special guest. Uh, Someone's bringing a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of information on the claim side, and a wealth of experience. And I've had the privilege of spending some time with him. And I'll tell you, he's, he's a great guy as well. He has 20 years at Great American Insurance Company. He's a senior vice president. And his name is Jim Cecil. Hey, Jim. Good morning, Steve. I think How you just I... said that I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can do the math. It, it adds up for all of us, as I try to tell people sometimes. I've been doing this for 30 years, and I'm like, oh, boy. That's yeah, like, it's 35 that's for time. me. Well, Jim, tell us a little bit about yourself, your experience, um, and what you do. I run the uh, excess liability claim division for Great American, which is um, a standalone uh, we we handle we administer claims that are are unsupported, so we're not over our own primary uh, policies. We're other ca- over other carriers. Handle claims coast to coast. Once in a while, a foreign one, but for the most part, uh, we're all stateside. Um, I've got people in different different areas of the country that are handling our claims. Generally, when you're on the excess side, it all becomes pretty big stuff. We're not dealing with too many slip and falls unless they end up having a brain injury on the on the way down. So that's kind of what we're doing. I started off many, many years ago as a claims trainee and, you know, kept my nose to the grindstone and here I sit. Fantastic. So so excess claims, we're talking about the, the, the big boys, as they say, right? Correct. Correct. So. In our last episode, Tom and I were talking quite a bit about the state of the industry, so to speak, from our side, which is the legal side. Um, on the claim side, what are you seeing right now as far as the state of claims in this new kind of post-COVID world where we have some things Zoom, some things in person? What are you seeing on your end? I'll start out before any other comments just to say anything I say are my comments, not necessarily that of the Great American Insurance Company. but. As so acknowledged. Of, sure. As yeah. for the as for the state of claims, um, it's uh, it's challenging. I mean, we're seeing big verdicts across the country, which uh, also begets big settlements because people won't take what we think is reasonably or or reasonable plus. You know, we're just seeing crazy numbers that come out. And uh, you know, I think one of the things is by the time some of these cases come to us what's in the tank isn't all that good. So, you know, we're trying to stay ahead of things and making sure we've got good depth uh, preparations uh, of the key witnesses and sometimes the not so key witnesses. Everybody involved in the chain of it can be a weak link. And if uh, plaintiffs get some good sound bites from some of them, it could turn the case on its head. So I think the, um, you know, since, I don't know if it's COVID that had anything to do with it in my mind, I think we started to see these so-called nuclear verdicts start to pop up around 2015, maybe a little before that even. But you know, all my life there's been what we call claim development. 
there's never been a time where we said, wow, things are just like they were five years ago. So maybe it is a natural progression as well. But this just seems to be um, quite an uptick lately. Hey, Jim, let me ask you this, because you know, I, in my practice, I get around nationally as well. I think one of my impressions, but I'd, I'd really like to hear yours, is we're seeing a change in the traditional views of venue, meaning we 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 used to think, hey, Central Pennsylvania was a great venue for defendants, you know, a decade ago. Um, and I'm not sure that people would totally agree with that today. And, and, and no. I see that as a bit of a change in some of my cases. What do you see? There's no place where you could say, wow, we're safe. This is a, uh, a defense-oriented venue. I think any place can turn on a dime. Uh, you, can, you see an example of that where the whole state of Atlanta now is a judicial hellhole where it used to have some very conservative venues in uh, in Atlanta. And, um, you know, I think there's been enough advertising that's gone on that's that's polluted the whole pool there. So, yes, you're correct. It's uh, it's 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 certainly a challenge because there's no place where we can say and say, oh, this this venue is not going to be a problem. So one thing you mentioned earlier, Jim, which is which is interesting, is with the excess. Are you getting involved when the claim has already been kind of down the road a bit and they're realizing they had to put you on notice or are a lot of your cases are you involved like from jump as soon as the claim comes in both steve we see it both ways and it's those it's the first instance that you said that are are troublesome for us because if if we get it and it's a catastrophic truck accident and the driver's already been deposed and it didn't go well and the safety manager's been deposed and maybe it didn't go well because their uh, lawyer met with him an hour before the deposition, and his preparation was to say, answer yes or no, don't guess, wait for me to object, blah, 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 the typical things like that, without going through a narrative and maybe putting them through days of preparation, which a lot of people need. Uh, those are the ones that are problematic for us. When we see a really you know, a bad accident, we know about it the day after it happened or even you know, a couple of weeks after it happened. Uh, we can get assets in play to make sure that we're not seeing that sloppy workmanship go into it. Sure, sure. So I, I guess that that leads into one, you know, bit of advice you could give um, to uh, young attorneys that that are starting out. What are your What are your thoughts there for counsel uh, that you work with, especially the younger group? I think they have to remember that they have a profession. They're they're, they're not beholding to the carrier who's telling them you have two hours of prep time and that's all you're allowed. Uh, you know, they they took a commitment to represent a client. They need to rep represent them. Well, what do you say? What's your oath say? Zealously, right? Yes. Uh, that's what that's what they need to do. So um, I know it's a it's it's problematic for a lot of firms because they're working for a big carrier and there's certain guidelines. But those aren't aren't sufficient for a lot of cases. I, I think zealous advocate sometimes gets used as a shield when you do something bad, right? Lawyers mm -hmm. will say, "I was just being a zealous advocate," right? And 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 I like what you just did, Jim, which is sort of framed it much more in the dedicated to the profession right. and the development, right? And and I I think that was interesting. Uh, a minute ago, you mentioned assets and resources in preparing for deposition. And I think that maybe the younger lawyers don't hear that all the time. It kind of took me, I would say, I'm not saying I'm younger than Steve, but I've had a little <laughs> bit less time than, than practice. I would say it took me five, six, seven years out of school to realize 
there were assets out there. So what what are some of the things that you had in mind when you said that that sort of tie into being well, zealous? We, we bring monitoring counsel into a lot of cases. You know, your your firm could be is an example of one of them, but there's other ones across the country that we use. And I think when we do that, I would say 95% of the lawyers who are already on the case embrace that. 5% or so get territorial about it and feel like they're being shoved aside. But remember, when when the case is won, everybody won it, so they shouldn't they shouldn't resist on that. And there's also uh, there's also uh, witness prep consultants that you could bring in when you really have somebody difficult. There's some vendors out there that do it very nicely, uh, and sometimes sometimes I think they can reach a difficult witness uh, or deponent better than than a lawyer can. I think when the lawyers always meet with them and they're wearing a tie, they don't even know that their own counsel is on their side. Yeah. They they perceive anybody, you've got a guy who's done nothing but driving trucks all his life, or he's a laborer or whatever. They perceive anybody as wearing a tie as they're in trouble. So uh, I think- No, I no think, ties today, notice, no ties no. today. Well, correct, <laughs> no. correct. Well, listen, we've all gotten away from it. So I think, uh, Lawyers need to embrace that. And it's not just long, young lawyers. I mean, there's plenty of lawyers that have been doing this 30 years when we bring in monitoring counsel to get very resistive to it. Uh, and I can't can't quite understand it. I guess sometimes it's a longtime client. They don't want to have that relationship messed with or uh, they don't want somebody else to show them up. But, um, you know, it's all about doing the, the right thing for the particular case. The, the egos need to get set aside. Sure. I mean, we see that all the time, especially when we meet with our clients for the first time and we tell them, no, no, I, I work for you. I, I'm your lawyer, even though we're paid by an insurance company right. or through risk management, whatever it might be. But we're going to represent you. And they kind of look at you cockeyed and say, really? Is that really what's going to happen? But the answer is absolutely 100 percent. And that's kind mm -hmm. of our job, right? I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing on, on our sure. end. We talked about some of the advice for for counsel and zealous advocacy and, and, and how best they could do that. But how about for risk managers? Because now what we're seeing a lot of, uh, especially in these post-COVID world, is a lot of people working from home, a lot of young risk managers, young uh, claims folks who are, who are working out of their houses. Um, what, what are your thoughts there, Jim? It's a problem for career paths. It really is. Um, you know, it's one thing when you're a 10 plus year technical person and you have been doing your technical job to be at home and not have that much interaction. But when you're trying to start out in the business and you need input from other people and you've siloed yourself working home in your pajamas, uh, it's hard to get that ongoing training and uh, absorb things that go on in the office. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, you're going to get involved in meetings, but there's a lot of ad hoc stuff that happens that isn't going to happen if it's going to require scheduling on Teams or Zoom or anything like that, where it's just a quick conversation about things. And that's that's the way you have to learn. I always think anybody coming out of a training program needs a good five years uh, of down in the dirt handling claims before they they need to move on to uh, any kind of other job, whether it's more higher technical or uh, supervisory. You know, it can't be somebody eight months out of a training program and now they're bossing people around. They just don't have the, the street cred at that point. They don't have the knowledge either. I, yeah, so I think one of the cool things I'm seeing along those lines, sort of a flip side of what you, what you just said, Jim, is I like that some of the claims folks that I work with are able to attend 
some of the some of the litigation events now because we're doing them by Zoom. Whereas, you know, when I was younger and coming out of school, that did not happen unless you arranged in-person attendance, right? So right. I, I do like having that discussion with the claims team that that technology is providing. And I realize it's somewhat separate from what you were saying, but I like having that discussion when it comes to, hey, what did you think of that witness as a deponent if you sure. if you, you know, attended that? Um, do you do you attend more things now because of technology at least is that a, at least one positive flip side to that for you you know i'm going to back up to what you were saying about having young people attend though first before you move on sure. I mean, there were times where you know back when i was handling primary claims but maybe i was a more seasoned person in the office and i was running out to you know maybe i was in the office in the morning and they were picking a jury someplace and now i'm going out to go watch a trial uh, and at that time, we might have had a trainee in the office or somebody who's been at it for a year or two. I would often say, hey, you know, do you want to come along? You know, that that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't happen if they're at home. Sure. <laughs> that only happens because you maybe bumped into them in the office. <laughs> yeah. 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 But anyway, back to your question about attending. We're attending things both ways. There's, there's a lot of in-person mediations that we attend. There's also a lot of... Uh, online ones and i think it depends on the case and it could be beneficial one way or the other they're very easy to blow up when things are remote whereas it's not so easy when people have traveled and maybe there's a, a mediator or somebody with a cool head to block the door so people don't run out there's 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 a tendency that goes on both ways and and, and i think all, you know it comes back to the case whether it's beneficial or not i think for people that are motivated to settle their case an online mediation is fine i think people who uh who when you need a mediator to get to clients to to reach them, they need to be there. And that could be on both sides. I'm not just talking about plaintiffs. Sometimes sure. that could be the defendants as well and the and even the even the the claim representatives. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times that's a great tool for us as well to help our clients understand potentially the value of a case by saying, no, no, I, I know it doesn't seem like a really big case, but this person's gonna hit a home run and they're great. And here, why don't we go see them? Why don't we sure. go to that mediation, hear from them direct and and all that? But, you know, what you mentioned about the younger folks and younger risk management and claims people, I think it also applies to attorneys as well, younger attorneys. It's really hard to ask what you might think is a dumb question um, when you have to type it out in an email, uh, as opposed to peeking your head in somebody's door and say, hey, let me run something by it. I mean, you're a lot more, you know, likely to do that when you know, the person's right down the hall and maybe you have a cup of coffee and, and chit chat away as opposed to typing out a long email and exposing your lack of knowledge when you're just starting <laughs> out. But quite frankly, everybody has a lack of knowledge when they're first starting out. So that's we have uh, we have a group of trainees that comes through Great American claim trainees every year or so. And there's always an intro call with them, with the uh, claim business unit leaders. And one thing I would say to them is. When somebody says something you don't understand, we use a lot of jargon. There's a there's there's a lot of initials for things and acronyms. When you, somebody says something you don't understand, ask it. Don't let this be in your eighth year, and you still don't understand <laughs> what they've said. I was at a meeting where uh, we actually had an underwriting. Um, he wasn't quite a trainee, but he was on a lower level end and um, an underwriting assistant. And somebody said something about IBNR incurred but not reported and i said do you know what that means and he said no i said good ask that then this is the time i didn't know what it meant i still yeah. don't <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I'm always amazed by that under, underwriting. And that's claims. the kind of thing that's used so interchangeably. And again, yeah, a lot of people don't don't understand it. You know, one thing we we've kind of broached the subject a little bit is mediations and and you know what you do, Jim, is really really interesting because you're talking about layers upon layers. So there could be a mediation with you. You tell us normally um, on some of your bigger cases how many parties are involved. Give us a little uh, give give us a little taste of what what you experience there and and what your thoughts are. I think overwhelmingly they're going to be one on one, a plaintiff and one defendant. Sometimes there might be a couple of defendants. Uh, you know, a lot of what we do is going to be heavy duty auto losses. So for the most part, they're one defendant. But on some of the GL type losses, or we'll have construction accidents. Gosh, there could be five or several. Um, you know, I was at a mediation one time that was uh, six people killed and seven injured in a in a apartment building colla uh, balcony collapse that had two big insureds, the property owner and the property manager with each 100 million plus tower of coverage that had probably five carriers on each side. So here you are in the defense room with 10 uh, insurance companies, most of which had their coverage council along and uh, monitoring council is, uh, was pretty cumbersome, but for the most part, they're gonna be one-on-ones. So on some of these huge cases, how, how, what's what's the best way to attack it as far as breaking it down? Are we worried about let's get the number or are we worried about percentages? Because to me, when I'm in bigger cases, it's the percentages that oftentimes it becomes the bear. I mean, you, you can work with plaintiff's counsel, but co-defendants, it becomes a bloodbath. What are your thoughts there? I think the numbers, the numbers gonna is gonna be what's most important. You're our, our number for our person is going to be most important. Uh, if we're if we're set on a number and we're happy with that and somebody else doesn't pay anything, who, who really cares? Um, yeah, it is nice to have people sharing it, but as long as you're not making up for somebody else, I'm, I'm fine with that result. So percentages are fine, but you also don't want to get caught to a percentage that's going to drag up your number uh, naturally. You know, so if you agree to do something on a 50-50 basis and you're only willing to do X, don't let the discussions go up to a certain point. And sometimes you got to, you have to, you know, spell out in the beginning where you're comfortable going to, which is probably not where you're really comfortable going to. You want to leave some, some room on that for <laughs> ongoing discussions because most of these, nope. overwhelmingly on a big case of mediation, the first mediation doesn't settle the case. And that's fine. That's fine because... For a lot of times, the plaintiffs themselves, this is the first time they're hearing of these kind of numbers. They have no idea what this kind of money will do with them, do for them. So they need to go sleep on it for a few days or weeks even. So um, I'm not miffed when something doesn't work out the first time. It sometimes takes two, three, even four times. Uh, the mediators love it, of course, but uh, you know it's the ongoing, ongoing revenue there, but. It, it, it is what it is, and it's and it's necessary a lot of times. But let me ask this, uh, sort of along the lines of when you do have multiple defendants or multiple attorneys and coverage and so forth, how do you feel about the mediation preparation process, right? One of the things that, that we certainly do um, on our end of things in our firm is we're trying to prepare for mediations, not the day or two before, but much further you know, back in time. 
because there's some really complex things you you, you kind of referenced there. Um, but I, I wonder, what do you guys see on the claim side or what do you prefer maybe on the claim side when it comes to mediation prep in these in these more difficult cases? I think a good mediator and a good lawyer representing either side is going to have advanced discussions with the mediator. And if you've got a case where you also have coverage aspects, you need to make sure you have a mediator that understands that, uh, not just a guy who's winging it, who's who's got no coverage background. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of defense lawyers who have gone into mediations all through their defense life, they're always going to say, "I never get involved in coverage aspects." Because, you know, that's not my thing. Well, then they can't be mediating those cases. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. And nor do you want a true coverage lawyer on on that because they don't understand the values of the case either. So it's a it's a fine line. But I think you have to educate people on your case before you get into it. And that and that includes not just the mediator. Sometimes that I think for the plaintiffs, it probably includes their client. And for us, it includes our insureds. Yeah, you know, we have to tell them up front, don't, you know, whether, you know, there's two, there's two different schools of thought. Some want the case to go away. Some feel they did nothing wrong and don't want to see any money spent. You have to explain the realities on both sides there that maybe it's not going to happen that day or, um, you know, just, just give the process, give time to the process and let us work it. We know what we're doing. We've been doing this for a long time. This is probably their only case and uh or maybe the only one they've ever had so don't uh, get too excited because we said no we're not going to put any more on the case that day um you know things things can happen down the road and on this you know on the same token when they're saying well we did nothing wrong why are we spending any money on this case well because we're in a because we're in a bad venue and uh you know we've got issues in in our on our case and you know we have to be smart about this too so. yeah I mean, so the, the coverage aspect of it is interesting because it's really, as you brought it up, Jim, it's it's two sided, right? So you have to explain to the insured that, you know, this reservation of rights is real, understand that, and there's there are some pitfalls there. But then on the flip side, plaintiff's counsel needs to understand too, there's 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 real coverage issues in cases that happen all the time. And they need to be cognizant of the fact that, oh, by the way, if this goes the wrong way at trial, for plaintiffs, um, that could be zero uh, paid in, in coverage dollars. So it depends on the case because you also have to be a little bit careful going giving the plaintiff that kind of ammo because it helps them drive a wedge. Oh, sure. Between you and your insurer. <laughs> Absolutely. All for another day, I guess. But anyway, sure. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Any any parting thoughts? No. Um, you know, we we talked about advice to counsel uh, to young lawyers, and I think one of the things to uh, young claim people coming into this is uh, seek out opportunities, seek out training, um, especially when you're hired. And you know, a lot of people get hired with one or two years, two years claim experience and they move to another carrier and now they're working at home and it sounds great. Okay, I'm home and my boss is never looking over my shoulder, but you're not going to get too far that way. So you have to ask for, for training opportunities. You have to ask for tougher cases, tougher assignments. Um, you can't just wait for things to fall on your lap. It's not going to happen too well that way. Agreed. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, You're very welcome. And I, I really appreciate it. Thanks yeah, again. Guys. Thank you, Jim. All right, guys. It was great to have Jim. I, I can't believe we got a legitimate and real guest. And uh, I really enjoyed, you know, in particular, 
hearing sort of his views on, on, on mediations today and where the, where he kind of looks at that stuff. Agreed. Absolutely. And that shoehorns us in right to the agreement company. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, the agreement company, everybody look them up. They're up on the board now. Um, fantastic group of people, including myself, who do arbitrations and mediations. And the best part is we will accommodate you. We work with both sides really well. We've gotten great results. We have a fantastic team. Check out the website. Check out our mediators and arbitrators and give us a call. You can reach the agreement company at theagreementco.com. You can also contact them via telephone at 215-642-8855. Log on and schedule your mediation or arbitration now.